welcome to Cheap Wine and True Crime. I'm your co-host, RJ. Each week we will discuss a true crime case while we drink some cheap wine we randomly grabbed off a liquor store shelf. This week we will be discussing the crimes of Dorothea Puente while we drink a bottle of 2017 Cabernet Sauvignon from 19 Crimes. Now I will hand you over to the heart and soul of this show, my co-host and other half, Jess. Pop the cork and let's get this case cracked. We start our journey in Sacramento, California in late 1988. We are following social worker Judy Moyes of the Volunteers of America. She's become concerned for one of her clients, Alvaro Bert Montoya. Bert is a 51-year-old man and he suffers from schizophrenia. Judy placed Bert in a boarding house back in February of the same year. When she had placed him in this home on 1426 F Street, she met with the landlady, Dorothea Puente. Dorothea portrays herself as a 70-something-year-old grandmotherly lady with years of nursing experience. When Bert moves into the house, there are a couple of tenants also residing there. The first one is Benjamin Fink, a 55-year-old alcoholic who is known for going on drinking binges when he gets his monthly check. There is also John Sharp, who is 64, and he is a retired cook. He's also the only resident who doesn't have any mental or health issues. After placing Bert at the boarding house, Judy visits to check in on him. He seems to be doing well. He's clean cut and well dressed. Now we have these residents in, but there were other residents that were mentioned to have lived there. We don't know. Uh, it was all before. It was all said before Bert. Moved I think in. they said that they had all moved out shortly before um, Bert moved in. Um, it was James Gallup who was 62, and he had had a brain tumor. Dorothy Miller, she was 64, and she was an alcoholic. Betty Palmer and Leona Carpenter were both just in their 70s and not able to care for themselves. Okay, and I know um, during one of Judy's visits, she had mentioned that, or she had asked about Fink, and it had been mentioned that he had gone on one of his drinking binges and hadn't returned or something like that. Just something to note. So, now it's November, and Judy hasn't heard anything of Bert in weeks. So, she calls Dorothea to inquire about Bert's whereabouts. Dorothea tells Judy that he went down to Mexico to visit her brother, who's a doctor. Dorothea assures Judy that Bert is supposed to return in a couple of days. Weeks go by, and she still hadn't heard from Bert. She calls Dorothea back and tells her that she's going to go to the police and get them involved. Shortly after her call to Dorothea, Judy receives a call from someone who claims to be a relative of Bert, and the caller says that Bert is with him in Utah. Judy contacts the police at this point to report Bert missing, and this is November of 1988. What I find strange is that Bert's been there for, um, well, November would have been about nine months, but we don't know exactly when he disappeared. Um, but anyway, in this amount of time that he was there, Judy's checked on him. He seems to be doing well. He's got nice clothes. He's clean cut. He looks better than she's seen him in a while. So if he's doing so well, seems to be, you know, adjusting to his meds, I would imagine, not having any issues with his schizophrenia at this point. Why would he need to go to Mexico to see a doctor? Right. Yeah, I agree with you there. Especially if, I assume, 
she means by him doing well, not only clean cut and all that. I assume he, well, at this point we didn't know about, it was, I don't know, medication, if there was diagnosis. Yeah, for, I don't know if there was, but I'm assuming that, you know, he was adjusting well, not having any I would have episodes. To go, right, I would have to go back and look into all that. But maybe if he if there was medication for it at this time, maybe he was on his medication at that time. So if all this is going well, why do you need to go to Mexico? And it doesn't say whether he went with someone. It just says that he went down to Mexico. I had heard somewhere that he went with other boarders. Oh, okay. So maybe there were other people that had left the boarding house recently that had supposedly gone to Mexico with Bert. Even then, most of these boarders in this house, it was noted that John Sharp was the only one that didn't have any form of issues. Right. So if he, even if you're sending him down with other boarders, it's not the best situation right. to if see her doctor. Right, alcoholics and people with brain tumors or people right. with other mental and health issues. Honestly, if you were going to send him down there with somebody, you probably should have sent him with John Sharp because he was... Probably the most able-minded of of all of the, all of the ones that were staying in that house. Right, and then again, what is this doctor? The cure-all of everything? Right. I don't think they ever said what kind of doctor he was. And then another thing that was weird was how quick Judy received the call about Bert being in Utah from the relative. Yeah, it seemed like it was pretty shortly after she got off the she phone. She talked to Dorothea. She. I don't know if it was immediately after or if it was within a day or so, but she pretty quickly receives that phone call. And that call in itself is strange uh, in multiple ways. Uh, yeah, the caller says, he initially says, my name is Don Anthony, and then he like cuts himself off. He's like, oh, no, 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 I mean, it's Michelle, whatever the name was. And Bert is my nephew, I think he said, and he's with me in Utah. But I think based on the fact that the guy who called her didn't even seem to know his own name, that tells Judy, like, red flags everywhere. I'm yeah, calling the cops. Definitely a few red flags float up here. So she calls the cops, and then what happens with it? After she calls the cops, Judy meets with the police, and they basically do, like, a welfare check at the boarding house. But Bert, obviously, is not there. Uh, Dorothea and the other residents tell the police that a rel relative came and packed him up and took him to Utah. When Detective John Cabrera is leaving, John Sharp passes a note to the detective that he wants to meet privately with him. When Detective Cabrera meets later with Sharp, Sharp tells him that Dorothea had them lie for her, and that Bert did not really leave with a relative, and that it was often an awful smell coming from upstairs. He also tells him how there were holes in the backyard. At this point, Cabrera decides he needs to do another look through the house. So on Friday, November 11th, he goes back to the house at 1426 F Street with fellow detectives Terry Brown and a parole agent, James Wilson. They're met at the door by Dorothea, and he asks if he can take another look around the house. She lets him, and the other police do so with no hassle. They see nothing that appears out of place or seems out of the ordinary, Cabrera then asks if he can do some digging in the backyard in the spots that Sharp had mentioned, and she allows him to do this also with no fuss. While they're digging, they start to find some cloth and what seems to be leather, 
and then Detective Cabrera is digging, and he comes across what he believes to be a large tree root that he has to put down his shovel and grab with both hands and just pull it out with all his might. Now, this tree root's not a tree root. No, it's not. Uh, he, he quickly realizes his mistake in thinking it's a tree root, and seems to be a femur bone of some sort. Yeah, he said that it's pulled out and he was holding a human femur bone in his hands. Um, now, I'm sure they had to send it off for all kinds of testing to, you know, 100% determine that, but he's a cop. It's probably not the first bone he's seen, so he probably was able to look at it and say, yeah, it's human. His anatomy is definitely better than mine, that's for sure. <laughs> um, Dorothea appeared, that this, appeared to be shocked that this bone was in her backyard, it was said, and... That cloth and leather-like material gets sent off for testing. Let's talk about that. Maybe, it. I don't know if it would be all that uncommon if you don't take care of anything in your yard, if your yard's overgrown. But then again, we're living in California at the time. She. It was noted from time to time, I had read in places, that she was very picky about her garden. So these wouldn't be things you would find laying around in your yard. So that's suspicious. No, she didn't seem like she was the type of lady that had this crappy backyard and she was burying her trash back there or, you know, dumping food scraps or anything like that. Like, she seemed like she kept her yard pretty nice. She even would hire people from some of the local halfway houses, like some parolees and stuff, to come help her do some of her landscaping and stuff for her. And they also, during the search of the inside of the house, they came across an empty pill bottle that was labeled Dorothea Miller. Dorothy Miller. Oh, Dorothy Miller, sorry. And Dorothy Miller, when they asked her about the pill bottle, when they asked Dorothea about the pill bottle labeled Dorothy Miller, she stated that it was a relative that had come to visit and left it there. And this pill bottle was filled to what appeared to be uh, medium-sized blue tablets, I guess. Yeah, I think that's or what was they that, believe. I, that might have been over-dramatized in, in the show that we had watched I wanna for say, effect. I want to say that there were two pill bottles. One was labeled Dorothy Miller, and I don't know if they said specifically what was in that pill bottle. And then there was an unlabeled bottle that had the blue pills in it. But I want to say that the, the Dorothy Miller one, I think I saw a picture of it... Um, in an article, and I want to say that it was lorazepam, is what I think it was called. Oh, okay. Now, with all this searching and everything, they didn't have a search warrant, but out of all the residents that they had talked to on the side, they ended up talking to John Sharp. And it, as we had noted, John Sharp didn't have any physical ailments or mental cases. We don't really know his story for being here. We know he was a retired cook, maybe wasn't all that good on his luck, and it was cheap, or maybe he was just a cheapo and it was cheap. Yeah, I mean, maybe he didn't have family, maybe he didn't, I mean, Dorothea took in a lot of people who didn't have family, who didn't have, you know, anybody else to take them in. So, I mean, maybe he was just hard on his luck, he was retired, he didn't have anything in savings, he couldn't really afford, you know, a whole lot more than what Dorothea was charging, and maybe she charged a pretty reasonable room and board, and it worked for him. Right. Also, she invited them in and let them search. 
So they didn't need the search warrant at this point. No. And you had told me something about when they had started, uh, something I found hilarious about when they had started digging uh, with the shovel. Yeah, because there were the two detectives and the parole agent, they apparently had only brought two shovels with them to start the digging, so Dorothea actually gave them a third shovel so that all three of the officers could dig in her yard, and ironically, it was that third shovel that belonged to Dorothea that actually struck the quote-unquote tree root that ended up being a little more than a tree root. Well, that's bad luck, to say the least. So now that Detective Cabrera has found this femur bone, he's going to start doing a little bit more digging into Dorothea's background and starts to uncover that this sweet old grandmother ain't all what she says and appears to be. Dorothea Helen Gray was born on January 9th of 1929 in Redlands, California. She was six of seven children. Her father was Jesse James Gray and her mother was Trudy Gray. It's said that both her parents were drunks and that she would often have to scavenge for food. Now, both of her parents died at an early age in her life. Her father died from tuberculosis when she was eight. It's then that her mother split her time between abusing and deserting her children. She would lose custody of the children in 1938, shortly after she loses her life in a motorcycle accident. In the same year, orphaning Dorothea before the age of 10, she then bounced around from family members and foster homes until she was 16. Now, at the age of 16, she's now on her own and living in Olympia, Washington. She is working as a prostitute to earn money, and she ended up catching the eye of a young soldier by the name of Fred McFall. Now, Fred McFall was a 22-year-old and had returned home from the Pacific after World War II. Shortly after these two met, they were married in Reno, and she claimed to on her marriage certificate to be 30 and puts down her name as, uh, I'm going to let you pronounce this one. There's no way I'm, I'm going to get it. I'm going to guess Sherielle Riskel. Yeah, we're going to go with that. Uh, pronounce her name as Sherielle A. Riskel. Now, they have two children together. Dorothea moves to L.A. after Fred leaves her, and she leaves the kids behind. Now we move on to 1948. She has moved on from hooking and is now stealing and forging checks. She was convicted of trying to buy clothing and accessories with forged checks. She would spend four years in jail for this offense and was released in 52. She immediately breaks parole and skips town. Also in that same year of 1952, she meets and marries her second husband, Axel Johansson. They were married for 14 years. Now we move on to 1960, and she is convicted of living in a brothel. She claims she didn't know it was a brothel, and she was just visiting a friend. It's unclear if she served time for this. Eight years later, she marries her third husband. This is 1968 now. This is where she gets the name Puente. Robert Jose Puente was a 21-year-old, and the two of them opened her first boarding house. They were divorced within the same year of opening this boarding house. 
The house actually closed later that year. Dorothea had accrued more than 10000 in debt on that failed business venture. In 1976, she was managing another boarding house and married her fourth husband, Pedro Angel Montalvo. Two years later, she would be convicted of forging 34 checks and sentenced to five years probation. Now, one of her probation stipulations was that she was no longer allowed to operate a boarding house. She then begins to work as a home caregiver to get around that. In 1982, she was convicted of robbery and administering stupefying drugs to commit robbery. She was drugging her clients in order to steal them. <laughs> yeah, was she was. <laughs> I don't know where she was taking them. <laughs> she was drugging her clients in order to steal from them. Her former clients contacted authorities, and she ends up being convicted and sentenced to five years in prison, but is released after three for good behavior in September 1985. Now, the stipulations attached to this parole were that she was no longer to run a boarding house, no longer to care for any elderly, and was no longer to handle any form of governmental support checks of anyone else's. So, Dorothea just said, fuck that. <laughs> yeah. Alright, so Dorothea is still actually on parole at this time in 1988 when Detective Cabrera finds a human femur bone in her backyard. Her background check also reveals that Dorothea is only 59 years old, not in her 70s as she's been portraying to everyone. And, spoiler alert, she's also never been a nurse. So, following the find of the femur bone, a more intensive search is set up for the following day. CSI and forensic archaeologists come to 1426 F Street on November 12th to do more digging in Dorothea's backyard. She asks Detective Cabrera if she's under arrest, and he tells her that she is not. She asks to go get a cup of coffee at the nearby Clarion Hotel, and because they don't currently have anything to hold her on, she's permitted to go. Dorothea goes to the hotel, but stays just long enough to call a cab. Back at the F Street house, the team is unearthing a third body. This third body is completely wrapped up in plastic, duct tape, bedding, and other materials. When they go to the hotel to get Dorothea, she is in the wind. So they, she just done said, I'm out. She said they're finding bodies, I'm taking a cab, I'm skipping town. At least she knew to get out beforehand. I mean, you've allowed them to search everything up to this point. Right. And once they started digging, you had to know the gig is up. Absolutely. So. And you've seen the picture of her leaving the crime scene. Right. She's wearing like the red overcoat with the big old brown purse of hers. Yeah. The really puffy looking brown purse. Right. Because she had it stacked with $3,000 because she was gone. And the detective said they had no idea. No, they had no idea. Though I even saw it on an interview. Um. Cabrera was like, see that purse right there? See why it looks all fat like that? Because she's got three grand in there, and she's about to run. But in the detective's defense, at this point, they still No, do... they didn't have anything at this point to hold her on. They didn't, I mean, at that point, they hadn't found the second and third body yet. So she wanted to go get a cup of coffee to calm her nerves because, you know, you're finding dead bodies in her yard. And without something to hold her on, they had to let her go. But... Once they find a body, you would think... 
Or no, before she went, they did they hadn't found a body, correct? They'd only found the femur bone. Okay. And then she was at the hotel and then that's when they're unearthing the third body. So while she was probably on her way to the hotel. She was already in a cab. She was long gone. I read somewhere that she like took a cab to a bar, had a few drinks, then called another cab, took that cab to a bus station, took the bus station, went from there. Calm her nose and or calm her nose. <laughs> calm her nerves and gather everything. Yeah. But that also speaks to her persona to be if she is involved in any of this to be this cool and be able to walk away and get a head start right out from under their nose that's got to aggravate you as a detective oh absolutely and it i think it goes to show like yeah she's got this grandmotherly persona but in the same respect she's also this sneaky and conniving and shoves three thousand dollars in her purse and runs away that's so, not what an innocent person does. No, it's not. In defense, the detectives don't know that she has the 3000 We don't know that... Right, well, ab- we do know that she's left it at this point in the timeline because we found the three bodies in her backyard and we go to grab her from the hotel that she's supposedly at and she's not there. So we know where she's in the wind. So at this point, you're jumping to number one suspect. Right. And the next day is the 13th of November and they're going to find two more bodies in the yard. They're wrapped in a similar fashion. Um, Then the day after that, the 14th, they find a shallow grave under the shed um, in her yard. And another body is found in the front yard near the sidewalk. And this body has no head, no hands, no feet. That actually bothered me for the longest time when we first started looking into this case. Because for the longest time, I couldn't find anything on it. And I was like, why is there only one body that went to this extreme to have no hands, no feet, no head. And then we watched a documentary on the, this case at one point, And the detective himself said it was simple, just so they couldn't be identified. Right, but if you're a person who's killing multiple people and burying them in your yard, why would you only do that with one of the victims? And I know they even said that they did a search across the street from her house. There was like, I don't think it was a vacant lot. I just think there was a plot of land there that would be ideal for burying some body parts. And they even checked over there to make sure that the head and the hands and the feet weren't there because I guess they were getting ready to put some other kind of structure up over there. So they figured, you know, if she could have got them in the ground before that other structure went up, they'd never be found. That's a good place to hide them, but I don't think they ended, ever ended up finding them, did they? I don't think so. I don't think to this day they've ever been found. And, of course, we're finding all these bodies now, and that's going to prompt cops to talk to the neighbors and stuff. Did anything good come out of all of that? Um, there was a next-door neighbor, and he was telling the detectives that he had complained to Puente about the awful smell coming from her property, that was so bad that in the heat of summer he couldn't even use his air conditioner. And he also shows them what he found in his own yard that morning, and it was 24 human teeth. 24 human teeth. Yes. Probably should have researched how many teeth a person has. But I'm going to go ahead and assume they weren't all from one person. I'm also going to go ahead and assume that a lot of them probably didn't have teeth because they were elderly, so maybe a lot of them had partials or dentures or they may not have had 24 teeth in one mouth 
It happens. Yeah, makes sense. I just don't know why you throw them over your fence. It makes me wonder if, like, okay, you buried the bodies in your yard, and you take the teeth, and somebody else you try to take the head, feet, and hands. Like, you're doing all this stuff to not have these people be identified, but when you took the teeth, like, were you stupid enough to put them in a container and keep them in your house? And you were afraid the cops were going to come back in the house and find the teeth, so you just opened the window and heaved them over the neighbor's fence? Even with that, even if it, it's, if it is that, and the cops are coming down to crunch time, it, I agree with you, it makes no sense to put them over a yard into your neighbor's fence. Cause right, those a neighbor who's his... complained about how stinky your place is, and you know that the cops are going to canvass the neighborhood, and they're going to talk to people, and somebody who finds a handful of human teeth in his yard is probably going to come forward. Right, and at the same time with the 24 teeth in his yard, the only thinking I could possibly come from on her behalf is, well, if the teeth are in his yard, then I can just tell the police that he must have put all those bodies in my yard. Right. Try and make him look like a suspect. Right. I mean, that's pure speculation on my behalf. A of normal course. adult mouth has 32 teeth. 32. So this except person... For with, except for wisdom teeth. Just for reference. Okay. So, still shy a few teeth. Which, I mean, older... Like you said, if it's a full set. Was there anything else from the neighbors? That one neighbor mentioned the teeth and had... We had police... um, Complaints, sorry. We had complaints on record that... About smells and stuff of that nature. Did any other neighbors come forward and say anything else? The only other thing that I saw was that another neighbor had mentioned that Dorothea had borrowed a saw from him. I saw this mentioned. I didn't see if there was any more, like, information as far as did they test the saw? Did they check to see if there was blood or tissue or whatever on it? Because kind of leaning towards that she probably used this poor neighbor's saw to dismember the body that was found in the front yard. I wonder if, did he never mention if he got it back, did he? I don't, yeah, I don't know if it was mentioned if she returned it, just that she borrowed it. Because I would assume if he got it back, then they would have been testing it, or you could have looked at it and seen if there was anything on the blade or wedged in it, because, I mean, well, I would imagine also, she was probably pretty thorough, and she probably cleaned this all, but I'm, there's I'm, things that don't show to the naked eye. Right, and I'm also jumping to the conclusion that they had a circular saw. Right, that's where my mind went. 1988, I know technology's moving forward, but not everybody has circular saws when they first came out. I don't remember when the circular saw came out. Right, but I feel like that would be a pricey purchase, and if you had something like that, it's probably not something that you're going to let your neighbor borrow and maybe not report it stolen if they don't return it. Right, so... Let's say that this is a handsaw. I think I feel like that's a safe way to go about this. That makes this all that this one particular murder, whoever committed it, that we found that makes this all that much more personal. Because the amount of time you would have to take to saw through the body, 
Yeah. So I don't know that that could fit Dorothea. We right. have this we have this frail old grandmotherly lady. Yeah, I think they said she was five foot two, five foot three, like a hundred and thirty pounds. So she wasn't a very big lady. No. And you would have to saw through the human body. I don't know how much strength that takes. Never had to do it myself. I've only ever sawed through wood. And very few times have I used a hand saw. Well, I do, we live in the age where I've been lucky enough to use the circular saws. Right. So, but... I don't... She doesn't have a whole lot going for her. She's in the wind. We're finding all these bodies. She's nowhere to be found at this point. But a lot of questions come up as her size like if she did this how did she put these people who were larger than her in these holes in the background or in the backyard or filling the holes in and be able to do this within a time frame of being 50 what was she she was 59 but she told everybody she was in her 70s she's 59 she probably did look like she was in a, her 70s i mean she hasn't had an easy life maybe they were her teeth they said that she didn't have any teeth why would you throw your own teeth over the fence? I don't know, but I'm just saying. They said she didn't have any teeth, and that was one of the ways that she made herself look older was that she would leave her dentures out because then that makes your face kind of suck in a little bit, and it makes you look older. So with her silver hair and her lack of teeth, she looked like she was in her 70s. Could be. I just don't understand why you would throw your own teeth over the fence. That's the only thing. I don't understand thing. why you would throw any teeth over the fence, but... Very good point. <laughs> Just a random thought that popped into my mind. True. The wine is starting to kick in. It is starting to taste better as uh-huh. we go. That is for sure. It's just, it's drier than I like. The flavor itself is good. I just, I'm used to sweet wines. So, we have the fact of where was, she has people living in this house. So, if this was going on, where was this taking place? You know... For you to be able to do this, and the amount of noise this would probably cause. Right, but I'm wondering, because a lot of her clients had mental problems and stuff of that nature, were they on a lot of medications because they had trouble sleeping, or, you know, maybe they were some pretty sound sleepers and she did it all at night when they went to bed. That That's saying that she did it at this point. We still don't or know. Or someone in the house. Right. So you, you think that you're saying she did do it with all the stuff going against her. Is that what you're saying right now? I'm saying she ran away with a purse full of money. She is guilty as sin. That's my opinion. Okay. That's knowing afterwards. We didn't know she had the purse full of money at that time. Sorry, if you don't know that she has the purse full of money at this time, do you say she's guilty? Yeah, because she ran away. Okay. I understand there are situations where people panic and people just run away. I understand that, and I understand that that happens. And I don't know how I would react if I was in a situation of I was being arrested for something that I didn't do. But I just feel like running away and being on the lam, probably not the best way to clear my name. Agreed. I I would have to say if I was put in the detective's shoes and I had to make a judgment at this point, I would say guilty too. Just because I ha- I do have this one question, and it's only about one of these bodies. So, therefore, she could be in cahoots with someone. I'm going to say guilty at this point, if, if I'm the detective. Because even if it wasn't you, 
just hang around. You wouldn't have known all these were here. You wouldn't have known we uncovered all this. So why are you running before we found anything? Right. When you she when she continued... left for the coffee house, nothing had been found at that point, minus this femur bone. Right, which she was totally shocked and dismayed and confused about when it happened. If she just stuck to that party line. So given everything we know at this point, yes, I'm going to have to say right now, I feel she's guilty. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of Cheap Wine and True Crime. On the next episode, we will continue the story of Dorothea Puente. Quick disclaimer, we do the best research that we can to ensure our information is correct, but we welcome your suggestions and corrections. Please follow us on Twitter at Cheap Wine Crime and on Instagram at Cheap Wine and True Crime. Until next wine.